morning, church. My name's Vanessa. I have the privilege of serving the young adult community um, in our Tuesday night small groups. And I'll be reading from Isaiah chapter 66, verses 1 to 3. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Could you build me a temple as good as that? Could you build me such a resting place? My hands have made both heaven and earth. They and everything in them are mine. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will bless those who have humble and contrite hearts, who tremble at my word. But those who choose their own ways, delighting in their detestable sins, will not have their offerings accepted. When such people sacrifice a bull, it is no more acceptable than a human sacrifice. When they sacrifice a lamb, it's as though they had sacrificed a dog. When they bring an offering of grain, they might as well offer the blood of a pig. When they burn frankincense, it's as if they had blessed an idol. Good morning, church. Welcome. We're glad you're here this morning. If you're a guest with us, we're thankful that you're here at Austin Oaks Church and you chose to worship with us. Uh, just real simple to let you know what we're about. We, we really want to be just about Jesus. And our goal is always to help people meet him for the first time, to get to know him in their walk of life, and then follow him uh, in the, the rest of their life is a heart of it. And my name's Chad McCartney. I'm the pastor of discipleship here at Austin Oaks Church. Uh, if you're new, our lead pastor, Brandon Ziske, is on sabbatical. So two things I'm going to ask you to pray for uh, today. One is I'm wearing glasses, and know that you know me, I don't normally wear glasses because I wear contacts. And I have failed to pick up my contacts. I've been using samples all the way up until the last time I preached. And then I ran out and I didn't get to the, they're sitting right there. If you want to go out to Belterra Eye Care and pick them up, I'd really appreciate it. But, and these are an old prescription when I first got up here. So I'm just going to tell you this right up front. If I take my glasses off, don't listen to anything that I say. It's, it's just, if I have them on, it's about 50% chance that, that what I'm saying is, is helpful for you. So pray, pray for me in that, that I can see everything I need to share. Uh, pray also that Brandon gets back from his sabbatical sooner than we had planned, because uh, then you won't have to deal with this at all. The problem will, will go away completely. So um, we're, we're in a really challenging situation. Uh, passage today. Just a unique one. This has been hard for me to even wrap my head around. So I want to just give a little bit of context to it and then we'll pray and then we'll jump in. The passages that were read are not the passages we're going to deal with, but they set some context to this passage that we're looking at today uh, in the book of Acts. Uh, We are in a series titled Build Your Church and it's uh, all through the book of Acts. If you're new to Acts or new, new to that book, the, the book of Acts is a narrative, the story, the history of the early church after Jesus rose again and ascended into heaven and now the apostles are kind of starting the church. We're seeing the very beginnings of what we've known for 2,000 years as a church. So uh, that's what we have going on right now is, is this moment. And so this is a passage about God's holiness and his uniqueness. And so these passages kind of prepared us for that. But we're actually going to be in the book of Acts looking at a, a, one of the strangest stories in the book of Acts. I'm just going to be honest with you. It's been a little bit weird. Last time I preached, I preached on hell. 
like everyone's favorite topic to preach on. And I think finally, okay, we're into, back into the book of Acts and what's coming up. And what do I see? I see this passage here. It's like, okay, this is maybe the strangest passage in the book of Acts. So I was a little nervous about it. Still am a little nervous, but I'm, gonna, I'm just going to jump in. Like I said, I don't have glasses that can see, so we're just going to kind of make this up as we go, all right? <laughs> Let's pray, and then we'll, we'll jump into... Um, actually, let me, let me do this first, and then we'll pray and, and jump into it. This passage, if you're, if you're following along in your Bibles, is in the book of Acts. It's, it ends at the very end, of, or starts at the very end of chapter 4, verses 32 is where the story starts. And then unfortunately there's a bad break with the chapter break, and it goes into the first 11 verses of, of chapter 5. And it's Really important you understand this. I don't normally do this, but this is really important because you'll misunderstand this passage and even much of Acts if you don't understand this basic principle that narrative books in the Bible, like the book of Acts, it's a narrative. It's someone telling the history, like the Gospels are, are intended to inform us. They, they describe what happened. They don't prescribe, prescribe necessarily what we're supposed to do. Let me say that again. They describe what happened. It's someone writing out what happened. Now, within that, there's things that we are supposed to do, but you have to interpret that a little bit from the way the story's being told and, and also from the rest of the Bible. That's why we have this whole book. There's straightforward teaching. A lot of the teachings in the New Testament are just straightforward. Do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. And so you use those books and the teachings in the early church to go back and help us understand, oh, this is what we're supposed to do from this narrative and this is what we're not supposed to do. Like there's stories in the Old Testament about a great king named David and he happened to have an affair with someone who wasn't his wife, and then he murdered her husband so that he could cover it up. That's in the Bible, and it's not instruction to say, hey, if you ever become king or, or president or somewhere like that, like have an affair and kill the person's husband. I know that's like often what happens, right, unfortunately, but the Bible's not telling us to do that. It's describing what happened. Okay, this is a passage that's like that. It's a narrative passage that's giving us information about what happened. It's informing us, but it's not a norm for us or even necessarily for God in this case. Very important you understand that. So as I teach it, I'm gonna take you other places in the Bible to help us understand why this, why like this, and what are we supposed to get from this? What are we supposed to learn about God and ourselves from this story, this true story that was recorded for us? All right, we good? with that? Okay, let's pray, and then we'll jump into our passage today. Father God, um, you know what you've been working on in my own heart through this, and you know um, your church better than anyone, not just this church, but your church across the world, and you knew that even 2,000 years later, uh, what would be necessary for us to know you and know how to interact with each other, and so we trust this story is something that we need to hear. And if it offends us, then Lord, let's just be offended. It's okay to be offended by a, a holy God. We, in fact, should expect that because you're so unique. You're so different. You're so good that it challenges us at our broken core. So Lord, I, I, my prayer is that, that I get out of the way my eyes get out of the way, my glasses, my own insecurities, and that I can just be a vessel 
uh, for people to see the goodness of who you are and mostly who your son is that you revealed to us so clearly in his life and death and resurrection. We love you. We commit this time to you and spirit ask that you would illuminate your truth to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You're gonna die. I'm just gonna say that. That's just to get the, the hard stuff right off the, the, the bat. That's the constant. Um, it, it just, what's gonna happen to all of us? Sin is gonna kill every single one of us in this church. It's, it's the only thing that's been 100%. We often say death and taxes, right? Those are the only two things that are constant. We're around tax time. But guess what? Taxes aren't even constant. Like my kids, I had five kids that grew up in our house, and the whole time they were in our house, they never paid any taxes. Those, like, how do they do that? They got away with no taxes until they finally got their first job. So they skirted taxes, there are, there are people, we know this, there's issues, like there are people now that, that know all the loopholes and they trick and, and they avoid taxes, they just do it. So taxes are not as constant, but death is 100%. Death is the only hitter, the only batter that's ever batted 1,000%, period. And so as we look at this story, Keep in mind that everyone dies. The only difference is how quickly and maybe the nature of it. But we all die. So in our story in Acts chapter 4, we start, and here's what we're going to see in the story. It's so important you see what the narrator uh, is trying to communicate. Luke, the Dr. Luke, who wrote this uh, account of the early church, Here's what he's trying to communicate. As any narrator does, they have a style and a communication. And here's what he's doing in this section. He's giving us a summary overview, like any good author might, going into something saying, these are the times or this is what things were like. He's given us a summary of the church at this little snapshot of time. Very early on, it's like in its infancy, Pentecost has happened, the Holy Spirit has come. That's kind of when the, the church started. It's, it's believers, Jewish believers at this time primarily that are from all all over the world, the diaspora, they called them, all these Jews that had been scattered, they came in for Pentecost. Pentecost was this crazy event where this Holy Spirit came and, and the, the leaders were speaking the gospel in everyone's language and they're going, what is going on? And this huge change is taking place, church. Like, they're going from this Jewish form of relationship with God to this New Testament, new covenant, new way of relating to the same God, but new because he's revealed more things to them. And so these Jews that had lived all across the world, like hundreds and thousands of miles away that had walked or come by donkey or horse or whatever they did for months to get there, they're not going back home because they're saying, this is so unique like, we want to know what's going on. And so all these displaced immigrant Jewish people who have put their faith in Christ or are curious about this are piled into Jerusalem during this time. And they're coming to faith by the hundreds. But they have nowhere to live. They have no jobs. They have no way to provide for themselves. So Luke tells us about this awesome thing that was happening in the church at that time, of the generosity and the unity of what was happening. We're going to see that. So he gives us this overview. And then he says, he, like any author does, he takes a general thing and he says, let me give you a specific example of that. 
And he, he's going to tell us this little st- snippet about Barnabas, of how he embodied what was happening in the church. But then he, then he quickly transitions. And like any good author, you give a, a little bit to think, little things, and then you extend out something that's really important. You write a lot about something that you say, hey, I want your attention. You've got to pay attention to this. And then he's going to turn to another example, a specific example, but it's one that he's saying, watch out. It's a significant warning that he writes about and says, be aware of this. When you're in a church that's full of unity and and God's doing great things, watch out for this kind of stuff. Okay, that's the the overview. Okay, so let's read it and and see it play out. And it starts in verse 32 of chapter 4. He says, all the believers, these were these Jewish believers from all over the world uh, at that time, were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own. So they started to share everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was upon them all. There were no needy people among them because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. So he's, he's fleshing this out like the first verse says. They were united in heart. There's tremendous unity, Luke says. So much unity that they said, hey, whatever is mine is yours. While we're in this together right now, we're just, we're just gonna, we're gonna do this together. It's such a unique time. Then he gives us a specific example in verse 36. He says, for instance, there was Joseph, the one the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was from the tribe of Levi and came from the island of Cyprus. He sold a field he owned and brought the money to the apostles. There's our positive example. General overview, positive example, but then we get to chapter 5, verse 1. It says, but... And he's going to spend 11 verses on something that is so crucial for the church back then and for us today to understand. Watch out, he's saying. This is what happens in a church that's experiencing unity. He says, but there is a certain man named Ananias who with his wife, Sapphira, sold some property. He brought part of the money to the apostles, claiming it was the full amount. With his wife's consent, he kept the rest. So let, me, let me explain this of how they would often do this back then. They would dedicate things. They would, they would dedicate something to the Lord. And they'd say, hey, we're going to dedicate this property. Maybe it's a whole property. Maybe it's a smaller slice. Whatever it was, they just say, we're going to dedicate this to the Lord. And whatever we get for it, it's going to the Lord. And that's what Barnabas did. But Ananias and Sapphira, they dedicated a property as well to the Lord, probably communicated that. And then when they went to sell it, they went, whoa. Like, they, maybe they lived in Austin. They went, holy smokes, I got that much for that property that I paid, like, d- pennies for? And suddenly it was like, I don't want to give all that to God. I mean, God doesn't need that, right? God's got, he's got the, owns the cattle and a thousand, you know, like, all the justifications we go through, right? And, and that's what they started doing. So they conspired together. They said, look, we're not going to do what we said we were going to do. We're going to keep some of this for ourselves, but we're surely going to give some because, I mean, we've, we've said something out loud. We don't want to look bad you know, in front of all the people that we did that with. But Peter catches on. It says, then Peter said, Who, how he did this? 
You know, obviously he was empowered by the Holy Spirit in a unique way in this instance. I don't know this about you, all right? So don't panic. Then Peter said, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit and you kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell or not to sell as you wished. So it wasn't that they kept any of it back. It's that they said one thing. They completely lied. They deceived. They could have not sold the property at all. That was, it was theirs to do that with. And after selling it, the money was also yours to give away. How could you do a thing like this? You were lying to us, but to God. As soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. Everyone who heard about it was terrified. I'm so glad Luke put that in there because that wouldn't have caused me to think that at all, right? I mean, everyone was terrified. They were fearful. Then some young men got up, wrapped him in a sheet, and took him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, was this the price you and your husband received for your land? Gave her a chance to own it up to it? She said, yes, she replied. That was the price. And Peter said, how could the two of you even think of conspiring to test the spirit of the Lord like this? The young men who buried your husband are just outside the door, and they will carry you out too. Instantly, she fell to the floor and died. And when the young men came in and saw that she was dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear gripped the entire church and everyone else who heard what had happened. This time I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward and take the offering. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just couldn't help myself. Trust me, I'd be going down with all of you, so don't worry, don't worry about it. So here's my question. Like, what in the heck are we supposed to learn from this passage? It's such a shocking passage. It's, it's so unique. And yet, it's so important that we get that this is a unique time in, in salvation history. God's doing something very unique here in, in the book of Acts at this season. And that everything he does is not normative for us and for the church. In fact, you see things like this throughout the Old Testament, even in every situation where God was making a significant transition. You can go back, go back and look at Joshua 7 when Joshua is inheriting leadership from Moses and they're going into the land and, and a very similar thing, God says, you set apart this stuff for me and, and no one takes any of the belongings that come from this. They're all an offering to God. He tells them and someone in that camp, Joshua 7 says, Achan finds something that looks really valuable and he grabs it and he buries it and he hides it and, and the end result is death for him and his family. There's other situations where Aaron was stepping into leadership as a priest and it was new for them and, and other people stepped in and, and kind of felt like, you know, why are you the priest? Why do you get to speak for God? We want to do that. And God was doing something new through Aaron. And so they went and they, they did their own worship service kind of stuff and God took them out as well. There's many other people that did similar things that God did not take their lives at that moment. But in key transitions at key moments when he's establishing something new, he might do that. And this is, story is an example of that, 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 that God will use these examples. He'll use situations to speak clearly to his church, not on what he's normative, but on what he's doing at that moment. I remember when I was in high school, um, I played basketball. 
I'm a horrible basketball player, but I played a fall sport, I played a spring sport, so basketball was just kind of what you did in the middle to stay in shape. So I was, I was an underclassman, I was on the JV team, and Coach Roback was our coach. And Coach Roback was a phenomenal coach, great man, had a huge influence in my life, just how he invested in athletes and used sports as a way to do that. But he was a hard-nosed coach. He had high expectations for you. And, and as a JV team, you know, you have all the privileges when you're on JV. So we got to practice at 6 a.m. in the morning. And as a high school kid, like, you love getting up at 5.30 in the morning to go to practice. And, and he loved to run you and work you hard. And so one morning, uh, we were working on uh, the full-court press. And, and his favorite press was, you know, put a point man on the ball, and then two guys, you know, just before half court, and you try to trap the ball carrier, you know, get him trapped in the corner like that. Whenever you do that, that point guy has got to, he, if he's lazy, it'll fall apart every time. You can't get him to that trap. And, and guess who was at the point that morning? Yeah, Mr. Lazy. As it was, and I was, I was like, I didn't, wasn't, didn't want to be there all that much, and I was being lazy. So he decided, Chad, you're, when we, and I rotate guys out because it takes a lot of energy out to do this. He never would take me out. He said, you're, you're there until you show me you're not lazy, until you bust your tail. And so I'm running like crazy, and if you know me, I sweat like crazy. Like, you just say the word basketball, and I start sweating. You say it's kind of a sport, I'm going to sweat. So I'm running like crazy. I'm, I'm like dying. I, at one point, I went over to the side of the court. I puked. And then he, he still didn't take me out. He said, you're back in there. You keep going. And, and he kept pushing me and pushing me and pushing me. And then I, it was at the point of like, I'm not get, going out now. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to let you beat me. So he'd say, you tired, Chad? Are you tired? And I'd, you know, dry heave no to him. It was just a pride thing at that point. But, but here's my point. Mr. Roback, Coach Roback, was not going to do that to every single one of his players. That was not his mode of operation. It was never his point to do that with everyone. His point was, I'm going to make an example of you, Chad, and your laziness so that no one else on the team falls into that same pattern. Are you, are you with me on this? Now, we get offended because, like, how, how dare God take someone's life? But we don't know the whole story about Ananias and Sapphira. We don't know what they may have been capable of if they had remained in the church. We often think, God, we stand in judgment of you. How dare you take someone's life? But, but have you just like, read anything about some of the, the issues that are going on in large church movements as of recent, or if you've followed church movements in the past? Whenever there's leaders where they're corrupted around money, or they, they don't handle money well, and they are deceitful with how they handle money, it never stops at just deception with money. When you dig deeper into those, there's always corruption in which poor and vulnerable people are being taken advantage of. And in some of these cases, there's children who are sexually molested, there's women, vulnerable women who are taken advantage of, vulnerable people taken advantage of. Those two things, you mark my words, every time you see this one, you see this one with it. Now, I don't pretend to know for one minute what God knows. But maybe he knew something about Ananias and Sapphira and might, might have been that we don't know. And maybe it was a gracious thing for even Ananias and Sapphira. The Bible doesn't say they weren't believers. Many commentators believe they were believers. They just made a really bad decision at this point that may have led them to much more 
horrible ones because they were allowed to get away with what they were doing. And maybe God graciously said, okay, we're, we're done here. You're gonna be in a better spot when you're done and the church is gonna be healthier to move on the way I want it to move on when that happens. I'm just throwing out a hypothetical that maybe we need to think of it a little differently. So what do we learn about us and ourselves? Here's my first point that I want you to see from this passage that I think comes out of it is, my deceit and my disunity offends God, harms my church, and brings death. When I'm deceitful, when I'm divisive in my church, it it offends God, it harms my church, and it brings death. It just does. This story is an, an example of that. Let me show you a couple passages. So, so this is how I know, I think this is what this story is teaching us because I see it elsewhere in the Bible. Titus chapter 3, verse 10 and 11, Paul wrote this to Titus who was shepherding a church. He said, if people are causing divisions among you, give a first and second warning. After that, have nothing more to do with them. For people like that have turned away from the truth and their own sins condemn them. God thinks very seriously about disunity in his body. It's very important to him. This one, it won't pop up, but make a note of this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, I'll read some of it to you, just a couple things. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, Paul is talking to the church in Corinth. And if you've read 1 Corinthians, it's a letter that Paul wrote to a church in Corinth. That's why it has the name. But it's all about the divisions in their church. The whole letter is Paul addressing all the different divisive issues that are taking place in this church. One after another. He just goes from one to the next to the next. He calls them believers, but he says you're immature. You're you're spiritually immature. You're acting like infants because of all the divisiveness in here. And then he gets to chapter 11, which we read a lot from this in this church because it's the passage that talks about the Lord's Supper. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, that's chapter 11. But we often don't talk about this section of it because it doesn't necessarily apply, but it's very applicable now. Listen to what Paul says in chapter 11. You can look this up for yourself. In verse 18, he says this. First, I hear that there are divisions among you when you meet as a church. And to some extent, I believe it. But of course, there must be divisions among you so that you who have God's approval will be recognized. You know what that means? That God uses divisions so that truth and not untruth can, can, can be separated out. When we just overlook it and allow it to go on, it just muddies the water and creates a really unhealthy environment. But divisions come up so that truth can surface and sin can be properly confronted and addressed and weeded out within the church. That's why. Look at what he says later on in that same chapter. He says, for if you eat the bread and drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, meaning if we come together in fellowship, if we celebrate the Lord's Supper without honoring the body of Christ, meaning if if we don't stop to think, what are we celebrating when we hold these elements? We're celebrating a God who in Jesus put aside every one of his personal comforts, his personal preferences to serve you and me, to die for you and me. 
Jesus wasn't down there going, man, that just stinks. They didn't play my song this morning. And I wish so-and-so was preaching when I got there. And why aren't we doing more of this? And, and it was too bright. It was too dark. I mean, one thing, you don't ever see him complaining about those things because he came to lay down his life. He gave up, Philippians 2 says, every single privilege that he had for 33 years to serve and die for this church. And what Paul is saying here is how inconsistent is it that when we come together and say that this is what we celebrate, we are so petty and particular about things that are not nearly as important as the heart of the gospel. And listen to what he says here. This is unbelievable. This is why I think we can understand the passage we're in. He says, when you come together and you drink without honoring the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. And that is why, listen to this, that is why many of you are weak and sick and some have even died. Do you see what he said there? He said, your divisiveness, my divisiveness, my disunity in my church will lead to me being weak, like lacking the vibrancy that God had created me for at times. I'm not saying everything, every sickness is caused by this. Hear me right. But, but some are. He, Paul says this. He said, some of you are sick because of this, because of your attitude in your church. And some of you have even died because of it. That's serious. That's exactly what we're seeing in this story. See, here's the heart of the issue. When impressing people is more important than loving God, you're already dead. When you need to impress people more than you need to impress God, you're already dead. You're living a life of death. It, it, it is of no benefit to anyone. God just sealed the deal here with Ananias and Sapphira. The only thing worse than what God did was if you would have done nothing. Because who knows the damage and pain that Ananias and Sapphira could have brought upon themselves for their ongoing actions, not to mention everyone else around them. We think it's harsh but we don't know what God knows, nor do we know or, or better than him. So, so Chad, you're saying, are, are we supposed to like then knock off anyone else and, that does this kind of stuff? Well, I just want to let you know, if you, if you look on your communication card, you can sign up for the next church stoning. We do them the second Sunday of every <laughs> month. No, that's not, that's not how... We do things here, and the beauty is, is the Bible gives us a, a process that's better for us. I don't know the future. You don't know the future. We don't know people's hearts. You don't know people's hearts. But God gives us a better process for us in our hu human state th that does the same thing in a more, I, I want to say gracious way, because I think God's way was gracious, but he just has more information that we don't have. And, and Jesus made this really clear. It's super simple. It's in Matthew chapter 18. Listen to what God says in this passage. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, you start privately. 
If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So that's how we start the process. Second is, but if he doesn't listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So, so if you have a, a situation where you see someone sinning, you go to them privately. You don't, you don't email your small group with a prayer request about their sin. You don't bring it up to the church. You don't tell everyone, oh my goodness, you wouldn't believe what I saw so-and-so doing. You don't do that. That's what we often do. The Bible says go to them in private. Love them enough to address it privately with them. And if they don't hear, then bring some others. Because here's why. You might be wrong about their sin. You may be seeing something wrong in it. And bringing other witnesses brings some objectivity to it. That they can say, you know what, Chad, you, you, I think you are wrong in this part of it. But so-and-so may be here and, and we need to reconcile this. And then it says if that doesn't work, if he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now what Jesus isn't saying there is, oh yeah, let me go on. Uh, Excuse me. What he's not saying there is that we treat him as horrible outright sinners because Jesus said love the Gentiles, love the tax collectors, but they're not welcome into the fellowship of the church if they're not going to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. We're an organization that submits to this particular leader, and if people don't want to follow that, then they shouldn't be part of this organization unless they're just checking that out and examining it and saying, I'm interested, I want to know more. He says, listen to what he says. He says, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is some of the most misunderstood scripture in the Bible. Do you know what this passage means? It doesn't mean we bind all these spirits and we loose all these spirits. It's related to what we just talked about. That word bind there and loose have a, are like, like a policeman. It's the same word you'd use if you were going to put someone in handcuffs or you're going to loose them. It's saying, when you go through this whole process as a church, when you do it properly and someone refuses to repent, then you have the authority, God's saying, you have the authority to, in a sense, settle them for judgment and and send them out to do their own thing, knowing that they're preparing themselves for judgment, for this fact that, that they're in a sphere that's outside of God's normal protection. And the Bible even tells us that the enemy, Satan, has more authority over their life at that point than you have when you are walking healthy inside a church. That's the authority he gives us. And if they repent, we have the freedom to say as a leadership, as a church body, that they're free. And he says, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it'll be done for them by my Father in heaven. That's not an open gift to say, hey, as long as we agree, we get anything we want. It's talking about church discipline. When we as a team, not me as an individual, when we as a church body say, hey, we agree that this sinful behavior is wrong, they're not repenting, we're removing them, then God says, I agree with that as well because you've done it the way I've told you to do it according to my word. That's our process. We can't do what God does because we don't know what God does. I've witnessed this process and its lack lead to either life or death in a church. I was first-hand party to it for a number of years in the church I led for a number of years. Early on in my ministry, I was naive, I was new, I didn't know a lot of things, and I was afraid of people. I was more afraid of people than I was of God. I'm still afraid of people at times. I'm less afraid than I was then, 
And then it crippled me from obeying God. And I, I let a behavior in our church continue because the process would have involved too many people, I thought. And, and this person was likable on the outside. And I thought, man, they're, they're going to string me up and hang me if I bring this stuff to them. And, and he, let me tell you what happened. I won't tell you the details. But that ongoing process drained our church of life. It harmed me. It harmed my family my kids, it brought death everywhere I looked in my life. Until by the mercy of God, I finally had the courage to start leaning into it the way he would want. And God removed that. It was a huge tangled mess by then, purely my fault. But when he removed it, it, it brought an eventual freedom and health back. And, and the multiple times I experienced this moving forward from there, what I found is I didn't shirk it. I, I moved towards it immediately. But here's what I found usually happens. Very quickly, usually that first step, when you go to it, one of two things usually happens. I found 90% of the time that first interaction either brings repentance from that person, they're restored, and there's a greater unity and a greater health within the body, or that person immediately recognizes, I'm not going to be able to get away with this in this church, so I'm leaving. I'm going to go find a place that will allow me to continue to victimize people with my Satan-filled behavior as Jesus called this out right here. And they left. And in both cases, our church would always become more healthy and would always experience growth afterwards. It's what God was doing here. The second thing we see in this passage is this. We see it pop up in two of the verses that, that Luke uses to describe the story. And since it was repeated after each of them, I thought this has got to be important. It says, as soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. And everyone who heard about it was terrified. The word there is had great fear. And we see it later on in verse 11, I think, the next use of it. It says great fear. That's the exact same word in the original language. Gripped the entire church and everyone else who heard what had happened. Let me show you where else Luke uses this word in the gospel or the, in the book of Acts. Because we tend to equate fear as only one-sided or one type, but it's used in a lot of different ways. Sometimes positive, sometimes negative. Acts chapter 19 Verse 17 says, the story of what happened spread quickly all through Ephesus to Jews and Greeks alike. A solemn fear descended on the city, and the name of the Lord was greatly honored. So a solemn fear and, and, and great, greatly honored was the Lord Jesus. So this is a healthy fear. It's a good fear. And then watch what happens with it. Next verse in 18. And many who became believers confessed their sinful practices. See, Luke is using this as a, as a good, a positive fear. In fact, I want to use a word that maybe will be more understandable for us so we get what's going on here. Is, is fear, in this context, means a profound respect, an, a profound uh, reverence for someone. It would be like if, if the President of the United States walked into our congregation or someone whom you thought was hugely respected you know, across and they walked in and you go, whoa, I want to listen to them. I want to hear what they have to say. It's not a cowering fear. It's a profound respect of going, whoa, they're here? You see, our, our failure to profoundly respect God often shows up in two different extremes. 
Here's how it often shows up. Uh, We're either too formal in our worship or we're too casual. Both are ways of of not profoundly respecting God. It seems strange. You think, well, more formal, that seems more respectful. But it's really not. It's our man-made ways of, of covering up what's really going on. We're either too formal or we're too casual. Both methods avoid bringing God what he deserves. They're both cover-ups. Both lead us to having a skewed view of who we are and who God is. And both of them put a primary emphasis on how we worship, not who we're worshiping. Both are offerings just like Ananias and Sapphira, which deceitfully keep us, part of us back. See, see when we're overly formal, we, we presume on God's blindness. We think, as long as I look really neat today, as long as I sing these fantastically theological hymns and I have this formal and this reverence and I come in with this mindset and I'm only talking about, we, we, get, we think that God doesn't see the rest of our lives and he doesn't see into our heart. We think we're fooling him when we have this over-exaggerated formalism that somehow it, it really communicates that we respect God. But he knows what we're thinking, and he knows our inner attitudes, and he knows what we're doing when no one is looking. See, an over-formalism and an over-emphasis on that is really us simply thinking that we can cover up the brokenness and ugliness that resides in every single one of us. But our casualness in worship is really just the other extreme. We often think, I'm just authentic. I want to be authentic before God. That's a great thing. But, but authentic, just spewing out, you know, I did this, and man, I did that, and God doesn't care what I look like or how I dress or what I wear. I'm just going to come in, even though it you know, doesn't matter what I was doing last night, and there's some truth to that. But when we come in and, and we're doing that every, every night and every day, and we're just sloppy with God in ways that we would never be sloppy with anyone else, that's trivializing our sin. It's thinking that God could care less about what I do. That He doesn't care that I'm partying the night before. I'm sleeping with this person. I cheated at work. I'm cheating on my taxes. I'm stealing from people I shouldn't. I'm prideful. I'm greedy. But, but God just accepts me how I am. And next week I'm going to come back and I'm going to be a cheater and I'm going to be greedy and I'm going to be sloppy and I'm going to be informal and casual just like I was last week. That's not authenticity. That's failing to profoundly respect the God who made it possible for us to even walk into his presence. See, we either cover up our sin with our formal and seemingly reverent worship or we trivialize our sin with our casual and seemingly authentic worship. But do we realize that if this story was God's MO, if this was his typical way of responding, that this whole building would be filled with dead bodies, mine included? So why isn't it? 
This is the question that this passage should answer, is why does God continually spare those who bring half-hearted, partly held back worship like you and I do every single Sunday? Why does he? There's one main reason. The Bible screams this all over the place. There's one main reason, but it, it plays out in a twofold manner. And here's the main reason. Listen closely. This is so important. God is glorified and he's pleased when he receives more worship. That's what pleases God more than anything else. When he gets more worship, it's good for us and it's glorifying for him the most beautiful, majestic being in the universe. That's, what, that's what's pleasing to him. So he's all about that. He created all of creation for that very reason. So he's gracious. He doesn't want to just wipe us out when we bring half-hearted. You know what makes him smile? Is when a half-hearted worshiper becomes a nine-sixteenths worshiper. Did you see what I did there? Right, eight-sixteenths is, is one half and and. For you non-math types, yeah? I could go decimals if you need to do a decimal system. I can do that, but I won't. You know what else makes him smile? In fact, this doesn't just make him smile. This, this starts a party in heaven. When people who are no-hearted worshipers. Church, listen to this. If, if you read the Bible, you realize this is the one thing that starts a party in heaven. When people who are no-hearted worshipers, far from God, become half-hearted or quarter-hearted or even a tenth-hearted, they, they start that journey with God. It, a whole party erupts in heaven. Guess what? These two things always go together. It's the increased heartedness of worship of God's people in his church. The increased heartedness. When our hearts increase in worship in the church, do you know what always accompanies that? People who don't worship at all out in our city see God and they start to worship for the first time. They always go together. We saw that in, in, in each of these passages. Read it. It's right there in the Bible over and over again. When a church is failing to help non-worshipping people become worshipping people, it's because the people of that church are not growing in their heart of worship. Period. They are dying. The two can't be separated. We try to. And we're awesome at it. We claim we're better churches because our budget is increased. We got a bigger building. Our staff is larger. We have more ministry. But these things by themselves, none of these things please God. Do you really think God is impressed with our budget? Like, this world is his footstool. Like, he, he rests his feet on it. Like, maybe his little toe with some toe jam might be sticking inside our building. That's how much he thinks of our building. It's nothing to him. Absolutely nothing. Do you think he's impressed with our activities? Do you think uh, he, would, he would give any of this or, or cling to this uh, because it's so important? Or, or would he in a heartbeat give all this stuff away if he could see one more person's heart be turned from worshiping this world to worshiping him? He'd give it all away. He wouldn't even think twice. 
Chad, that's a, a pretty bold claim. I, how, how would you back that up, Chad? I don't know that I need to back it up. Because God did that himself through his son. He stepped away from the best worship facility in the universe, the largest budget you could ever imagine, the most phenomenal ministry of the angels taking place all the time. He left it all to come down to this earth for one reason, so that zero-hearted worshipers could become half-hearted worshipers. He gave it up for 33 years so that lost people could be saved. He he didn't come here in order to start a cutting-edge new worship movement. That's not why he came. He didn't come here uh, in order to protect the great hymns of the faith. He didn't do so to build impressive buildings and large budgets with spectacular ministries. He didn't come for any of those things. Most of that stuff never existed. Do you realize that? Almost everything that Jesus worked with, that the early church worked with, that we think is absolutely vital for our ministry today, they had none of it. Not a bit. Folks, hear me. Please hear me. None of these things are wrong in themselves. There's nothing wrong with a building, a budget, a staff, ministries, none at all. But there is everything wrong with them when they become the heart and soul of our ministry and our primary focus over reaching lost people with the gospel and transforming those with the gospel to give more and more of themselves to God. The two always go hand in hand. If your heart isn't more loving and obedient to God, if it's not more loving and sacrificial toward people, then all this stuff means absolutely nothing. We might as well be dead. My life does nothing to increase the worship of God in my life or in the life of others, then what is my purpose? Honestly, what is my purpose? Or maybe the better question is, who is the purpose of my life? I might as well be dead. If this is the only story we had about God, it would be, it would be tough to swallow. Just think if God just said, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to give, my Bible's going to be one story. I'm going to give them, how about the Ananias and Sapphira story, right? We just read this every single Sunday when we come. And it would be hard to know this God. It would be tough to, to swallow, but it's not the only story. It's not the only example. In fact, Ananias and Sapphira weren't the only people in the Bible whose life was required because of sin. Everyone who's ever lived in the Bible, their life was required because of sin. All of us, are, we're going to all die because of sin. Not necessarily always our sin, but we are sinners. We bring it into the world. It's just sin causes every single one of us to die. Not immediately, but eventually. But let me ask you this. How would you feel if Ananias and Sapphira's sin resulted in you having to die? How would you feel about that? 
Or, or what about if it was your spouse? What if your spouse had to die because of what Ananias and Sapphira did back then? Or, or maybe your child or a best friend or a close loved one, someone you deeply love. and re- What if they had to die because of Ananias and Sapphira's sin? That, that would be enraging, wouldn't it? It would be so unjust. It would make you, it should make you angry. But someone did just that. In fact, only one person, only one innocent person has ever died, not because of his own sin, but because of the sins of others. See, our problem is that we aren't more offended that God would take the life of one who never sinned because of our sins. That's our greater problem. But this is the beauty and the glory of the gospel. This is the same holy, righteous God who takes sin so seriously that he must put it to death. It is this God sending his son to stand in our place to be put to death for us, to be punished for our transgressions, to be scorned for our divisiveness, to be beaten for our selfishness and greediness, to be humbly mocked, spit upon, stripped, and bullied for our arrogance. Church, that is the gospel. It is so offensive, it is so offensive that he should die for what I did, that it should cause in our hearts such an anger towards sin, towards our own sin, that we would put it to death every single day, every single moment, that we see it rising up in our hearts, in our actions, in our attitudes, that we would put it to death because it put him to death. You see, God gave us a better story, a better Ananias and Sapphira, and it's Jesus. It's not just one that invokes fear and awe in us, which this story does. It's one that that pours out love. I, I don't want to just be scared towards God because he took them out and I might do the same thing. Jesus points us to something that, that draws you. It doesn't push you towards God with fear. It draws you with a love to go, oh my goodness, you died for me? You who are perfect, you who have known the glories of heaven and and should have stayed comfortable in your little neighborhood up there and all the glories and pleasures you had, you came to this place and were mocked. You had none of what I had. He had none of the lifestyle that any one of us has in this building. And yet he continued to give of himself for you, for me. That's not a God you need to cower in fear from. It's one you want to draw near to as close as you can get. But you can only do that because he paid for your sins and for mine. Why would I ever cheat this God in order to be approved by people? Why would I ever be stingy with this God in order to look good to others? Why would I ever damage unity in this God's bride? He calls us his bride, his, his wife. Why would I ever cause division in his bride that he loves in order to, to demand my preferences or my worthiness or flaunt my righteousness? Why 
Why? I, I want to just get very practical with this as we, as we close this. Just three simple questions I, I want to challenge us to ask because there's just too much here in this for us to, to fully understand. I don't understand it. But let me just get real practical with you uh, on how we can uh, apply this in our own lives. One is in your church. A question you can ask in your church, they're going to pop up here. Another is a question you can ask in your home. And the last one is a question you can ask as you live in our city. Here's the first one in your church. Before you, before you ask this, but before you gather with your church, whether it's on a Sunday to worship, whether it's to serve on a team, whether it's your small group, any kind of, anytime you're getting together with your church, here's a question I want you to ask, and, and I'll flesh it out a little bit. Is who am I trying to impress? Is it God? Is it myself? Or is it others? Who am I trying to impress? Let me, let me make this real tangible. When, when the opportunity to serve comes up, Ask this question. Why are you serving? Are you, are you trying to impress the person that's asking you? Are you doing it out of guilt? to impress? I don't want them to think badly of me. There's a ton of guilt serving in the church. Like leaders, we're practically masters at making people feel guilty so they'll come and serve, right? But we shouldn't. We don't want to do that. We shouldn't do that. Shame on us. Are you doing it to please someone else or to please God? When a song comes up that isn't your style, ask this question. Who am I trying to impress? God, myself, or others? When the person preaching on Sunday, this is a really important one, when the person preaching on Sunday isn't your favorite, please ask this question. When the opportunity to give and be generous comes up, ask this question. Who are you trying to impress with your life? God, myself, or others? In your home, Here's a great question. Does my lifestyle aim to impress God or people? When I make a a time commitment personally or for my family, ask this question. Is this commitment aiming to impress God or, or people? Who am I profoundly respecting in this decision? When I choose to spend the resources God has entrusted me, ask this question. Who am I trying to impress? Those are some things we can do in our home that will make us more full-hearted worshipers. In our city, here's a question for our city. Am I using my city to better my life or am I using my life to better my city? So what does that look like? When, when my gain could result in someone else's loss, ask that question. Am I benefiting myself by using my city or am I using my life to benefit my city? Here's another one. When my position or my privilege benefits me more than others, ask this question. Am I using my city to better my life or am I using my life to better others? Or when I choose who to spend time with or who I network with, ask this question. Am I using my city to better my life? Or am I using my life to better my city? You're going to die. That's a constant. The only variable is who are you trying to impress? 
with your life? What are you holding back from God in order to impress others? Whatever you're holding back is what's preventing you from being a wholehearted worshiper of God. Let's pray. Father, it's not an easy story for any of us to hear. I wish I was sitting out in the audience today because they only had to listen to this for maybe 40, 45 minutes. I had to wrestle with this all week long. And Lord, the truth is, if I'm honest with myself, if I'm honest with you, there are so many ways, even in ministry, that I aim to please people or impress people much more that I aim to impress you. So Lord, forgive me first. No one needs it more than I do. How shameful to use a platform, a humble platform that you've given to bring attention to myself. Thank you for your grace, Lord. Thank you that you love to use broken vessels because in our brokenness, when we grow, when we expand, when our heart grows to worship you more, you smile. That's your heart because you know that's what's best for us. That's what you created us for. And Lord, when we do that, it draws those who who know nothing but this world and think that their whole life is wrapped up in the stuff of this world, it causes them to go, what's wrong with that person? Why do they not have the attachments to this world like everyone else does? Why do they have a joy that carries them through the most difficult of seasons? I want to know that. I want to know where that comes from. It's how you wired us. We're we're tiny little reflectors that shine your glory in this world. But yet we cover it up, we dirty it up, we muddy it up with all our formalism or our casualism or you just name it, God, we're good at muddying our mirrors. So Lord, let us see you today. Lord, let us be honest. Let us admit the deceit, admit the brokenness, admit the divisiveness, admit our sinfulness, because that's not our problem. You've dealt with it through Jesus. Our problem is when we hide it. Our problem is when we deny it. Help us to see your son, Jesus. Lord, let us be a church is a tool in your hand to lead those far from you into your glorious and good presence. For you are worthy. You are worthy. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.